Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin has again published its mindset list, which it does every year, this time for the class of 2022. So this is all about those who just entered college this last fall. Here's some things about it. Well, one thing is that among the ironic um, and iconic uh, figures, I should say, uh, that have never been alive in their lifetime include the original Obi-Wan Kenobi, Alec Guinness, John Kennedy Jr., Princess Diana, Mother Teresa, and John Denver. Uh, here's part of their list about these incoming freshmen. So if you happen to be one of those or know one of those, this would be true of them. They're the first class born in the new millennium, escaping the dreadful label of millennial. Though their new designation, iGen, Gen Z, etc., has not yet been agreed upon by them. Outer space has never been without human habitation. Uh, they've always been able to refer to Wikipedia. <laughs> People loudly conversing with themselves in public are no longer thought to be talking to imaginary friends. <laughs> they've grown up with stories about where their grandparents were on 11-22-63 and where their parents were on 9-11. The Prius has always been on the road in the U.S. There has always been a survivor. <laughs> Things change. People change. But God and His truth never change. Oh, our understanding of the truth might change as we mature and, and grow in our understanding, but his revealed truth, as we see it in Scripture, never changes. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And that's why the Apostles' Creed has remained instructive and in use throughout the centuries. We're in the sixth session of our seven times this morning, uh, looking at the statement of faith, statement of belief, crafted between the 2nd and the 4th centuries. And so let's just see where we've been and, and where we are today. And so the creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From then she shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This morning we're going to look at three more elements in the creed. The Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. In my mind, I, I, I kind of group them all under the banner of the reign of God in the church. Now, for our purpose today, I'm going to refer to the Holy Ghost as the Holy Spirit, which is more our common usage, thinking of that person of the Godhead. Uh, let me begin with a few observations about the Holy Spirit, and then where I want us to drill down into is the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. The Holy Spirit, as we study him in the scriptures, is a person with all the attributes of personality, emotion, intellect, and will. Uh, he performs all the actions of personality. He teaches, 
He guides, convinces, he restrains, he commands people, performs miracles, calls for special service and prayers, etc. The Spirit shares the divine attributes of being all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful. He's said to be truth, life-giver, to possess creative wisdom. The Holy Spirit is eternally existent with God the Father and God the Son. Now, I have to confess that my knowledge of the Holy Spirit as a boy was, was really limited. As, as I got a little older and I look back on my life, the only thing that I can remember that I knew of or thought I'd been taught of the Holy Spirit was that he was the third person of the Trinity and the Holy Ghost. Now, as a kid who regularly watched the cartoon program Casper the Friendly Ghost, <laughs> yeah, it did have a little bit of an impact on my perception there. But several things we should note about the activities of the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that at creation, the Spirit of God moved over the surface of the waters. He was there. He was involved. The Holy Spirit is involved in revelation and inspiration. Jesus said that the Spirit would come and would lead the disciples into all truth. And that God would take the things of himself and of his son and reveal them to these men who would write scripture. Um, the apostle Peter later writes in his second epistle this, but know this first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's really a, a Greek word picture, the word move there. It's the, it's the idea and the picture of a ship that's being borne along on the waves of the sea. And so what Peter says is that this is how it worked when the writing of Scripture, God the Spirit carried them along, moved them along in this process. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Um, Jesus told his disciples, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. This is the key. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So wherever the Spirit is working, the, the focus is not, should not be on the Spirit. It needs to be on the Son. Because Jesus said, the Spirit glorifies me. He brings glory to me. Whatever he's working, we see him pointing to Jesus, the Son. Then we see that the Holy Spirit brings conviction to unbelievers, to those that aren't of faith, who haven't trusted in God. Speaking to his disciples in the upper room, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus said of the Spirit, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. However it is, when you came to faith in Christ, God the Spirit was working, bringing conviction, the need of a Savior. That's part of his work. But the Holy Spirit also ministers in the lives of believers in so many different ways. For example, he does it by regenerating. What we mean by that is imparting eternal life in us being born from above, born again. He gives us new life, spiritual life, eternal life. There's indwelling, where the Spirit of God takes up his dwelling place in the life, in the heart of every person who trusts in Jesus baptizing, placing that believer into the body of Christ. 
and sealing. This is the permanent guarantee of our security in Christ, that when we believe in Him, we are sealed in Him, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit. So it's the role of the Holy Spirit now in the church that I want us to to focus on as we consider the next two statements within the creed. The creed says that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Well, let's define that word Catholic. I know there are a large number of you here who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, so this can be a little uh, misleading. It can be a little confusing. The word Catholic simply means universal, all-inclusive. Look it up in your dictionary. That's the meaning. This is speaking in general terms of all of those who are believers in Christ and who are a part of his body. When did the church begin? In a Peanuts cartoon strip, strip uh, Charlie Brown's little sister Sally is writing a theme for school titled Church History. And Charlie, who's by her side, notices her introduction. She writes, When writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930. <laughs> Charlie Brown rolls his eyes to the ceiling. Jesus told his disciples that when he was gone, he would send the Holy Spirit to them. And that promise was fulfilled 50 days after Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. It was Pentecost, the annual spring festival, harvest festival of the Jews. And it was at this time that the Holy Spirit comes in all his fullness. It's the beginning of what we call the church. It's the beginning of the missionary movement of the church throughout the whole world. But it wasn't until later that the Holy Spirit led Paul to write of this ministry in his letter to the Corinthians. Now we have the doctrinal teaching about this universal, all-inclusive church. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. We've talked about this before, but that word baptized in the language of the New Testament means to dip, plunge, immerse. The secondary meaning is to identify. And so Paul teaches that the Holy Spirit dips, plunges, immerses us into the body of Christ such that we are identified with Jesus. It had a common usage in in that day. Uh, For example, before soldiers went off to battle, they would take their spears and they would dip the tips of their spears into vats of blood. They plunged it into the vat such that it came out and was identified what was in the vat. A dyer of cloth would take a vat, whether it was a purple dye or red dye or yellow dye, and would take the cloth and was said to baptize the cloth, dip, plunged, immersed it into it such that when it came out, it was identified with what was in the vat. And so what Paul's teaching here is that it's in the baptism of the Spirit that every person who believes in Jesus are placed into the body of Christ. That's how you become a part of this universal, all-inclusive church. Notice that Paul says that all believers are placed into the body of Christ. Not just one, not just some, not just the spiritual ones. Every person placed into the body of Christ. The significance is that we are all one 
body. I know it's a little perplexing when we look around and we see all these different denominations and division, and, and, and everybody takes on their own characteristic here through practices and belief. Um, I just love this. Maybe you've, you've probably heard this, but this is a, uh, this is a good example of that. It's a, it's, it happens like this. During a recent ecumenical gathering, someone rushed in shouting, the building is on fire. Here's what happened. The Methodists gathered over in the corner and prayed. The Baptists cried, where's the water? The Quakers quietly praised God for the blessings that fire brings. The Lutherans posted a notice on the door declaring the fire was evil. The Roman Catholics passed a collection plate to cover the damage. The Congregationalists shouted, every man for himself. The Fundamentalists proclaimed, it's the vengeance of God. The Presbyterians appointed a chairperson who was to appoint a committee to look into the matter and make a written report to the session. The Episcopalians formed a procession and marched out. It really... Perplexing, isn't it, when we see all these different groups that are out there, but despite all of our differences and the fact that, that the, these divisions that have developed over the centuries, one thing is certain. There is one body, one universal church, comprised of all those who have believed in Christ and his work on their behalf. Let me repeat that. There is one body, one universal church, comprised of all who have believed in Christ and in his work on their behalf. What Paul didn't know, but we have known for the past 60 plus years, is the scientific equivalence of this. We know that every cell in the body shares the same genetic code. The DNA in the head is the same as the DNA in the toes and the elbows. The DNA of the church is the DNA of Christ. It is one body, one universal church. The church is the body of Christ, the all-inclusive church. Now that's the big picture, but it isn't all that we understand about the nature of the church. There's also the local church. And so the creed continues by declaring belief in the communion of saints. Now, as you read uh, the New Testament, sometimes that word local speaks of a church in a house. Uh, we also read of the church as being several house churches in a particular city. The concept of the local church also describes several churches in a region. So, the concept of the local church in the New Testament included a group in a single house, it includes several groups in a city, or it even includes several groups within a geographical region. Edward Hayes writes, in the New Testament, church meant a visible group of believers banded together in Christ, subject to the disciplines of the word of God, the rebuke and correction of elders, and the encouragement of other Christians. Church membership obligates the local church as a whole to minister to its members, and it obligates each member to serve the whole. So when we think of the local church today, we should think of an assembly of regenerated believers who are self-supporting and self-governing, a group of believers who meet regularly together for prayer, fellowship, worship, the study of God's word, 
and the observance of the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. If you start talking about church to people out there, you, you, don't you often find some people that have had some bad experiences? I mean, there are a lot of Christians that have really uh, struggled with this idea of the church because they felt they were, you know, browbeaten or abused or whatever, but they just really struggle with that, um, with the bad experience. And I think they have a lot in common with this fellow. Uh, one balmy day in the South Pacific, a Navy ship spied smoke coming from one of three huts on an uncharted island. Uh, upon arriving at the shore, they were met by a shipwrecked survivor. He said, I'm so glad you're here. I've been alone on this island for more than five years. The captain uh, then replied, well, if you're all alone on this island, why are there three huts? Oh, the survivor said, well, I live in one, and I go to church in the other. The captain said, well, what about the third hut? Oh, he said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> Isn't that sometimes the experience of people? But I believe the calling of God, the expectation of God for the believer is not only to be part of the universal church, but a part of the local church. In a February 2003 article in Christianity Today, touching on the local church, the editorial noted any person can stand outside the church and critique its obedience to the gospel. Part of God's call on a Christian's life is to walk inside and die to self by relating to other human beings, both in their fallenness and in their redeemed glory. With that in mind, I want to just have you consider four things regarding believers in the local church, which really are critical on the functioning of the local church. One is shared worship. We come together corporately to worship God. All it means to worship is to declare God's worth. We do that. We do that as we sing songs, as we interact with his word. Uh, and Part of this shared worship also is observing the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You can't do that at home watching a television program of a worship service. Uh, singing along to a worship CD in your car or at home can never substitute for human presence in the act of worship. Because we need to understand that church is primarily about God. It's not about us. But we're living in a weird time to me, you know, for having grown up in, in the church and been around all my life. And I think it's often missed in church today. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it's so much of, well, what can I get out of church? It's the consumer church. What does the church owe me? Um, here's the second thing. Not just shared worship, but shared fellowship. The writer of Hebrews captures the importance in his statement in chapter 10 where he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Tim Stafford writes, People need people. God's people need God's people in order to know God. Life in Christ is a corporate affair. All the New Testament epistles address Christians in churches. The Bible simply does not know of the existence of an individual isolated Christian. The importance of being together. Now, it's going to seem funny for what I'm going to say because I'm preaching to the choir. You're here this morning. 
But if you happen to be a parent of children, think about the, the modeling that you are doing of your values, of your priorities, of coming to church. How important it is. Where else are your kids going to learn the importance of shared worship, shared fellowship, unless it's through you as a parent? Uh, shared responsibilities. We have within the local church a responsibility of shared relational commitments. Uh, these are God's expectations on how we're to relate to one another in the body of Christ. I'll tell you, sometimes just do a study of all the one another phrases in the Bible. Uh, they speak of our relational responsibilities. I just want to give you a flavor of what you can expect to find. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Bear one another's burdens. Build up one another. Care for one another. Be devoted to one another. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Be hospitable to one another. Be humble towards one another. Be kind to one another. Love one another. Live in peace with one another. Give preference to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. We really are called to mirror Christ to each other. In some ways, we are Christ to others because he lives within us and it's personified in that way. But how we are to relate to one another and then there's shared ministry. God, through the Holy Spirit, has given spiritual gifts to every person who is a believer in Christ, every member of his body. And these gifts are different from talents. There might be a correlation, but, but these are basically spiritual enablements to be used to serve the whole body and to serve God through this, bringing glory to him. The Apostle Peter writes in his first New Testament letter, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's, this is the ministry that we have within the church to each other, whether it's a gift of teaching, gift of helps, administration, leadership, the gift of giving. You know, all of these gifts that God puts within the body that we might serve each other, all to the end goal that God is the one that receives the glory. But there's also the ministry that we have then outside the church. And this place, the church as it gathers, is to be an equipping place as we go out then and do the work of ministry that God has given us to do. I just jotted down a whole bunch of things that I see in the New Testament that are part of our calling as those who are in the body of Christ to those who are not in the body, to those who do not have faith in Christ. For example, we are proclaimers of the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're an example. We're, 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 a, we're a, um, uh, an exhibit, an exhibition of someone who's moved from darkness to light. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says, pleading with people to be reconciled to God. Amazing, after you come to faith in Christ, God didn't take you out of this world. He still has something for you to do here. And a part of that is being 
a ministry of being an ambassador, representing heaven on earth. We are witnesses of the risen Christ, not in the same way as the apostles were. We haven't seen him with our physical eyes, but we know the reality of it because we see him at work and we see him at work in our lives. We are witnesses of him. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Oh, the world is such a place of darkness out there. And people need to see that this isn't all that there is, that there's the light of the gospel. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, this amazing thing that God wants to know people. He wants to have a relationship with people that he's, that he's created. And we're involved in that. Uh, Paul says we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. What a calling we have by God to be a part of the universal Catholic, uh, all-encompassing, all-inclusive body of Christ, and also to be a part of a local body where we're involved in ministry together. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the authors of the creed said, the communion of saints. Um, well, we have one week left in this series on, on statement of belief that was put together long ago. Um, so let's just put it all together through today, shall we? So I'm going to ask you and ask you to affirm with me, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then she shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the, oh yeah, that's next week. <laughs> Three amazing truths that need to impact and do impact our lives today. Forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Three things that form such an amazing foundation for the lives that we live today. Well, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you so much for how you have helped men and women over the centuries to articulate the heart of, of the beliefs that we have. And we thank you for this statement, the, the Apostles' Creed, uh, that we can understand your truth, that we can be able to articulate your truth clearly and simply, that even as we might say this creed to ourselves, reminding us what's at the core of our faith. We thank you, Father, for your word, for the apostolic teaching that undergirds all of these truths that are stated in the creed. And we thank you that it is the basis upon which we can stake our lives and our future. And so we're so grateful for who you are and for your work in the world around us, in our church, and in our own lives. May we continue to be people who cling to the faith, that hold to the faith, that articulate the faith. And so we're grateful again for what you teach us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.